This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, welcome to a special episode of Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan. It's the end of the year, so let's relive some of the best moments from the show in 2021. I'll be taking a look at some of the fun things we've learned this year from why do we swear to if introverts are antisocial or misunderstood in this throwback episode to Today I Learned. First up, feminism. Feminism, according to Oxford, is the advocacy of equality of the sexes and the establishment of the political, social and economic rights of the female sex. But in recent years, there seems to be a negative connotation towards feminism. Not only do some actively push back against feminism, others, even those who support gender equality, do not like being labelled as a feminist. But why? Here's what Sivanandi Tanindran of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Center for Women had to say. Well, I think that uh, there's a lot of negative stereotyping. I think there was a lot of negative stereotyping uh, as feminists, as, you know, bra-burning, man-hating women, you know, uh, who are very strident, you know, and this keeps being perpetrated as well. I feel, you know, when someone identifies as a feminist, uh, whether they're male or female, they're making a very conscious choice, you know, uh, and it's a message that they send to, uh, you know, the person they're communicating with, you know, when they say, oh, I'm a feminist. And I think that that's uh, important because of the, they're saying that despite this negative stereotype, I still would want to say that I, you know, am a feminist, right? Mm. Um, and it's very clearly because, you know, feminists are people who won't stop t- talking, we won't stop questioning, we won't stop pushing the envelope, and we keep going at it. Even uh, when many people may be uncomfortable with the conversations or the topics that we uh, we bring up, right? And very often, cha- what feminists, uh, we are doing, you know, we are challenging the status quo, you know, to question and to think about what is it that we say that the fundamentals of our society are, you know, and whether it is at the family level, at the community level, or at the level of government and national politics, right? So those questions sometimes challenge people to force and, and force people to rethink, you know, these principles and ideas that we are deeply cherishing, you know, and mm. we've deeply cherished for a long time, uh, you know, uh, we, we kind of rip it apart. So uh, and, and analyze it or dissect it, right? Right. Uh, even a simple thing, like for example, when you say family is the foundation of society, you know, and you know, when people say that, you know, politicians say, oh, the family, we need to preserve the family. It is not that we feminists don't have a family, or we don't love the idea of a family, that we don't found families. It's just that our idea of what a family should be like uh, may be very different, right? Right. So, and and we force people to say, you know, this family that you're holding so dear to your heart and your political agenda, isn't this where the abuses of women and girls take place, right? I mean, where do we learn discrimination if not in the family? You know, where do we learn gender roles if it's not within the family? And the family is a site of, you know, unequal distribution of resources, of attention. You know, it is also the site where incest and sexual abuse also take place, right? And Mm -hmm. domestic violence takes place. So, we then, as feminists, often say, hey, look, 
we need, you know, legal structures to make sure that uh, family is an equal place for everyone or is a ha happy place for everyone, is a safe space for everyone. And hence, uh, it kind of uh, does away with the idea that, you know, there is this, you know, natural, organic, beautiful, harmonious organizing principles in the universe without <laughs> us having to like kind of look and, you know, fix it. So I think that that's one of the reasons. Right. The second is, of course, uh, in many countries, definitely uh, conservatives, political conservatives and uh, religious fundamentalists who are in politics will very often say that, you know, feminism is an imported agenda. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a white agenda or whatever, you know, so uh, and hence uh, it's not natural organic to, for us to be feminist. But as I was saying, you know, these are global movements because in the story of uh, our own oppressions, we can relate to women across different countries, right, uh, about what that happens. Like, for example, you know, uh, domestic violence was a unifying issue across all countries that we have seen. We've seen early marriage is a unifying uh, issue across all countries. So in this, we can see that the way that the patriarchal structure manifests itself at the, even the micro level or the macro level is very similar. Mm. And that is how we can link, you know, what happens in the family at a local level to what happens to the family at a global level. On the one hand, we have this pocket of people, um, men perhaps, who are... Uh, they're worried, you know, they're, like we talked about, that their position in society may be challenged and that's where the pushback comes from. But on the other hand, there is, I've, I've heard, you know, from, from even some like mutual friends and things like that, where they, you know, when you talk to them, they're not ex exactly a bad people, they're not a misogynistic people, they're not toxic people necessarily, but they seem to have a problem with the, with the, the whole feminist movement, the whole women's rights movement as well. And they, they ask questions like, um, so, so why is everything about women's rights these days? Um, why is nobody talking about men's rights? Or they ask questions like, or oh, even when we watch movies, it, everything is about minorities, everything is about uh, women's rights, everything is about having women directors and this and that can't we just make movies and enjoy movies how would you respond to these kinds of criticisms so most of the norms in society for so long have been about men's rights you know so the counter response is how do we look at women's rights in order to say what about access to resources? What are women's rights to access and resources in this? You know, what about women's rights and access to resources in um, uh, social, political or economic manners? Right. Hmm. So that's where the women's rights versus men's rights came about. And till today, I know that it is very difficult for us to unpack what goes on um, under the layers of things. But I'm sure you have read people like, you know, uh, Christina Criado Perez, right, mm -hmm. who's talked about how data in medicine, data in science, data in artificial intelligence, all privileges male. The male is the norm. Exactly. And women are a subset. So many of our needs, many of uh, uh, the realities and the articulations of women have not been counted in medicine, in science, and many of those things which are considered generally uh, meritocratic space. Because uh, many of these, uh, how do I say, uh, streams of thinking and uh, academic development say, oh, this is about meritocracy. You know, if you're good, 
then you're there. If you're not good, then you're not, you know. Uh, but we have realized that uh, over the years that there is a need to bring in the voices to interrogate what that norm that has been set up, you know. So I think that's what uh, uh, the thing is about, uh, um, you know, bringing that women back to be equal with regards men uh, right. is, is about. So uh, there is, of course, you can see like, oh, every time a woman wins an Oscar, we had a woman director win for the best picture, right? Yes. Uh, and this is like, you know, and can you imagine? And so if the response is, oh, my God, what is it about women directors? Can you imagine we have never had a woman director win the Oscar for the best picture? Exactly. After what, 60 years of the Oscars or something like that, people throw up their hands and say, what's it about these women directors? One <laughs> Well, she's the second woman director actually to win Best Director at the Oscars and the first Asian woman uh, woman to win the award. But hey, you know, two is not that much better than one. So your point still remains. So for me, I feel like, you know, uh, I think like, well, give us another 60 uh, women directors and then we'll stop talking about it. That was a snippet of a conversation I had with Sivanandi Tanindran of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women. The episode is titled, What is Feminism and Why Do Some See It as a Dirty Word? Up next, colonialism, or more specifically, neocolonialism. Following the end of World War II up until the 60s, three dozen new states in Asia and Africa achieved autonomy and independence from their European colonial rulers. Many consider this the end of European colonization. But is that really true? Or are we still colonized today, only in different ways? Here's a snippet of the conversation I had with Dr. Karim Batash, lecturer in social psychology and global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And this is also the reason why you see a revival also in the West mm -hmm. about thinking and talking about colonialism. So, first of all, most countries are still colonized. In my opinion, we can call it neocolonialize a neocolonization. And with me, many academics would say the same. Why do I say this? Well, even though many countries do not have a settled white ruling class anymore, the Europeans and Americans have left all these countries with severe economic strangleholds in place. That's why the West still rules most part of the world, while the rest is trying to catch up after the horrors of colonization. However, this is the way media indoctrination and psychological colonization works. It is invisible to most people. They do not realize it, but it happens at every moment. Like I just said, if we Google handsome men, we only get European white men in the first results. That's right. Hollywood movies have mostly white heroes. Video game characters are mostly white. In the education system, we mostly learn about Western scientists and philosophers. This creates an unconscious hierarchy of people. Now, in colonial times, European already knew the power of this, the power of these media images. This is why indigenous children, for example, were forced to get Western education so that they would internalize their own inferiority because Western education focused mostly on the representation of Europeans when it comes to discovery and science and all these things. Another example is the usage of religious imagery. By forcing colonized peoples into Christianity, 
and then representing the holy characters, such as God and angels, as European-looking white people, you unconsciously, psychologically colonize people's inferiority into their mind. Even today, most people think of Jesus as a Northern European-looking white man instead of a Middle Eastern brown man who he originally was. That was a clip from a conversation I had with Dr. Karim Batash, lecturer in social psychology and global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, on the episode titled, How We're Still Colonized. In August, I had a conversation with Dr. Sharifa Aisha. She's a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Linguistics at University of Malaya on how languages shape thought. Now, Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Wolf once hypothesized that language influences thought rather than the reverse. The sapir wolf hypothesis claims that people from different cultures think differently because of differences in their languages. But does that theory still hold weight? I think we can kind of look at it in three ways. Like mm -hmm. some linguists look at language as uh, the study of language as the study of the mental structures related to language. So some people look at syntax, how um, we mentally organize concepts to, to output a certain sentence in a way that is um, recognizable as language. Right. And then we also have psycholinguists who engage in a lot of the different um, things that you might be interested in today about how language um, can influence how we look at gender, how we look at um, how we experience and talk about colors and things like that. Um, mm. But we also have social scientists who look at language more from a social aspect. Um, the, the primary object of their study is language is a social entity that occurs in, in how we use it with others. And then we have the abstract, you know, very philosophical kind of um, concepts of language. You, you can't engage with all of language and whether it influences all of thought, but you kind of have to break it down into something that can be studied. So I think language can influence um, our habits in how we think. For example, mm -hmm. if in your language you always have to uh, address people with a certain um, salutation, you know, like in Indonesian, maybe you always say ibu or bapa, or um, we always uh, in Malay have to put puan or, or che, then you're always going to be thinking firstly about the person's gender and also be thinking, okay, how much older are they than I or younger? And, and you know, so in that sense, yes. Um, but then you could, of course, you go back to culture and context, right? Um, and the norms that, that become your habits of language and how much they reflect that. And you can't really separate cultural things from language. So for, to be able to say that this language itself that shapes thought um, without talking about culture and context, I find a bit problematic. That was a clip from a conversation I had with Dr. Sharifa Aisha, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Linguistics of University of Malaya on how languages shapes thought. All right, we do need to go for a quick break now. When we come back, we will continue reflecting on the best of Today I Learned in 2021. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show today, we are having a listen to some of the most fun and interesting things we learned on Today I Learned throughout the year. Why do we swear? 
We are told since young that there are certain words that should not be used, swear words. Yet we use it all the time, not only angrily to our biggest enemies, but also casually to acquaintances, our best friends, or even to and with our significant other. So what's the deal with that? I think it's a normal expression of a, a basic human emotion, which is anger and frustration. Right? I think that's something that all of us experience, no matter how old you are, no matter who you are. You know, I'm pretty sure even um, saints have been angry before, the Pope's been angry before, everyone's been angry before, right? And I think because it's a normal human expression, you know, what's, what's happened in society is that, you know, we have moved away from more um, physical expressions of anger, right? So you, you know, go backwards, like what, 200 years, 300 years, if you're angry at someone, you challenge them to a duel, you go for a fight or something like that, right? We don't do that anymore because it's not uh, culturally, socially acceptable, uh. And when we start pulling away from these more base instincts, more base uh, the actions that we would like to take, we then move towards more um, safer options, like, so to speak. Like. I think cursing and cussing is probably the last bastion of that, like, right? The one way we can express our anger and frustration and it's still relatively acceptable and safe, so to speak. Like. So I think that's one reason why we curse quite a bit or we, we, we swear quite a bit nowadays, like, right? It's a safe way to express ourselves and then, you know, it's fine, forget. We say it and off you go, like, in that sense. When we put our hands in the ice bucket, we feel pain, right? And because if we don't, uh, we're not allowed to curse, we're not allowed to say anything or do anything other than just experience the pain. That means our mind, our focus, our attention is just 100% on that pain that our hand is feeling in the bucket at the moment, right? But when we start um, diversifying, so to speak, our attention, right? To either to curse words or to malicious thoughts about the eyes or the person who made me do the challenge, for example, and things like that, right? And we start changing or shifting our attentions. That means then we're not totally focused on the um, ice bucket, right? A more real world example would be uh, uh, people, uh, women delivering uh, kids, right? In the pregnant, when they're in delivery room and they're in the, the troughs of pregnancy or delivering and things like that, right? Again, you see similar patterns as well, you know. Um, there's a reason why uh, in Hollywood, for example, there's this very popular image of um, the father figure or the partner standing next to the mom, squeezing the hand really, really yep. tight. And again, that's also another good way uh, to highlight. Like, when you start diversifying your attention or shifting your attentions to other things, you, it's a distraction for you like, from the actual thing that you're feeling at the moment. Like. So curse words are fantastic at that because, you know, especially the more um, fluent amongst us, uh, like you said, uh, Darshan, you said when you stop your toe, you say the F-bomb really loudly. Um, someone else might say like a string of expertise, right? Like right. sing a song or something like that. <laughs> and again, that's a really good way to, to again, diversify the attention so that you're not totally focused on the pain, right? And it gives you a bit temporary relief, like not for long, right? Yeah, my assumption here is that it doesn't take away from the pain, it's just the perception of pain, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, right. yeah, exactly. the pain's still going to be there, but it's a distraction uh, away from the perception of that pain. And is this why I, I wonder, people who, even people who don't like to swear, or maybe they personally don't feel comfortable swearing because of their own upbringing, still do it nonetheless, but what they do is they substitute um, certain oh, yeah, words yeah, yeah. for oh, another yeah. thing, like um, um, Surin brought up the, the whole fish instead of the yeah. F-bomb. <laughs> um, uh, word right or like basket instead of the b word so yeah, how, yeah, yeah. how oh, is this why people do it is it is it to regulate their emotions i reckon for me for example i've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old at home right mm-hmm. um, and like exactly what Surin said like you know i i'm trying my utmost best not to curse in front of them especially because <laughs> my wife will give me read me the right act right? <laughs> so i replace things with I, I i say things like basketballs i say uh, monkey <laughs> monkey posterior and things like that just so i can get around <laughs> So again, going back to the intentionality, my intention is to curse. I am trying to curse, but yep. 
it's just literally I can't do it, right? So I substitute the words and hopefully my kids don't pick up on any of my uh, nonsense lines. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> that was an excerpt from the conversation I had with Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Paul Kaur, Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at the University of Malaya, and Dr. Joel Lowe, Consultant Clinical Psychologist. A regular guest on the show, Dr. Karim Butash, returned to discuss why absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a popular saying which means having power corrupts people or lessens their morality. And the more power someone has, the more corrupted they will become. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. When do you go from someone who is kind of benevolent, someone who wants to do good, how do you suddenly go into corruption? Right. Well, like I said, this happens when someone suddenly gets unfettered power. This can have, you could say, an intoxicating effect. If you suddenly have tremendous wealth and power, you may see that psychopathic tendencies suddenly happen. You see it when people have uncontrolled power over others, for example. Think about prison guards or police officers holding others in custody. What you will often see is that with sudden uncontrolled power, they will start abusing their prisoners. This was, for example, shown in the Stanford Prisoners Program, which was a psychological study on what happens when people suddenly have total power over others. Very normal people, often formerly very good people. Almost always with that uncontrolled power over others, physical and sexual abuse happens. This is what we see, for example, with U.S. occupying Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan where physical and sexual abuse of locals by U.S. soldiers is a significant problem. Think about, for example, the Abu Ghraib situation or Guantanamo Bay. Similarly, one of the biggest taboos about, for example, European colonialism is how European power, absolute power in the colonies, resulted in mass physical slash labor and sexual abuse of local people. Now, you were talking about the Malaysian example in particular, for example. Right. And how... how how the, the, the government fell, and then some uh, politician jumped ship to the other, other side, even though the politicians were, you say, uh, um, f- fighting for justice and, 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 and so on before. Yeah. Now, I am not too aware of Malaysia, but I can tell you about what I see, for example, in the United States. I say the United States because most people are relatively aware of the U.S. in, in the world. Most of your listeners have probably heard of what they call the squad in the United States which consists of a group of young socialist politicians, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ilhan Omar. These were such a big promise, these politicians, to us all when they ran for Congress. Millions of people in the U.S. and around the world supported them to become the new socialist face of U.S. politics. Now, years later, they have become not only part of the democratic establishment in Washington, They actively push back against activists and socialists who ask, why is nothing happening? So the squad now has an extremely well-paid job. Okay, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, uh, 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 Ayanna Presley, and so on. So they have, you could say, they have become famous idols with millions of followers. And they get fancy Netflix contracts and fancy book deals. This has changed them. They don't want to fight the same corruption as before in their own political environment because they do not want to lose this beautiful, wealthy, and powerful life. 
again, here you go with the nature of corruption in the human mind. Once we have so much wealth and power, we cling onto it and we want even more. Unconstrained power corrupts and makes people less aware and care less about other people's feelings. Only the gratification of one's own feeling, only the gratification of one's own group become important. So you could almost say that this is a kind of learned group sociopathy or psychopathy almost. That was an excerpt I have from a conversation I had with Dr. Karim Bertash, lecturer in social psychology and global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, from the episode titled, Why Does Absolute Power Corrupt Absolutely? And finally, before we wrap this show up, introverts, what's up with us, huh? It is commonly said that extroverts are great at communication, while introverts are simply antisocial. But is this actually true? Are one's social skills directly tied to introversion and extroversion? Or is that merely an oversimplification? Assistant Professor in Psychology, Dr. Eugene T, joined us to bust the myth of the boring introvert. Here's a snippet from the conversation. So for extroverts, uh, socializing too much is never enough. But for introverts, just enough is too much. So you're right in saying uh, and highlighting a very important point there about energy, uh, because some personality theorists also simplify and uh, they, they have every good reason, empirical evidence to simplify that introversion, extroversion is where we draw our energy from. So with extroverts, it's much more external, more frequent external social, usually stimulus. Uh, but for the introvert, you've rightly pointed out that it tires out introverts a whole lot more quickly. So introverts, conversely, will prefer to recharge in, in solitude, right? Not loneliness. And important here, I'm just trying to sidestep all the terms that uh, introverts are lonely. No, they're not. They prefer solitude. And solitude, tellingly, is welcome alone time. It's wanted, sought after desired alone time. So they'll move away from the hustle and bustle and the social buzz, right? And then they'll curl themselves up into um, into their bed, you know, warm blanket, nice cup of tea, and then just drown themselves in their own thoughts, maybe with a good book. So that's for them, how they recharge. And I, I think that's something that a lot of introverts can uh, can relate to. Uh, listening to you speak, I can relate to it very much. So, so I'm thinking, okay, so I guess I'm an introvert because whenever I tell people that people usually don't believe me um, because they say, you know, I'm a half decent conversationalist, you know, I'm a ra- I work in radio, you know, I, I like having long meaningful conversations. It's literally one of my favorite things in the world to do. So, but Mm -hmm. I can be an introvert despite the fact, right? Of course, absolutely. So uh, you've also highlighted that there are some assumptions that, well, if you're an extroverted person, you're a social butterfly, you're a social animal. So therefore, uh, you probably work in media, you're very chatty, you're very gregarious. But look at you. I mean, if you relate more to, you know, quiet, uh, more Mm -hmm. in-depth, meaningful, uh, maybe even deep conversations. That's something that uh, introverts generally prefer. So let's not confound and say that if you're extroverted, you're outgoing, you're gregarious, you're more energetic, therefore you have better social skills. No, um, as we've seen both in the literature and I think we can relate to it in our experiences, just because you're an introvert does not mean that you cannot work in a predominantly extroverted environment, a very social environment, and suddenly you can still carry a conversation, right? So there's there's little to say that um, you're either one or the other um, or that you're better, right, in social skills um, compared to the other personality type. 
I think it really all depends on your social skills, right? But also the context that you're in. Um, maybe just to add on that and just <laughs> to clarify, you might think of introverts as functioning a little bit better in, say, a small book club-like meetings where they have like intense, you know, discussions about, you know, what they read or maybe the big ideas, right? They enjoy, they thrive in such uh, social environments. Uh, extroverts, though, they tend to do better in large-scale, say, social networking events, speed dating, right? I think that's mm. something that an extrovert would generally prefer more than an introvert. So let's consider the the context uh, that we function in as well when we are discussing differences and the tendency, right? to be a little bit chattier, a bit less chatty, uh, given the social context. Upsides and downsides of being an introvert, because that, there's always this negative connotation attached to being an introvert, or maybe people don't even know what that term really entails, right? Absolutely. Um, you can almost say, right, and I, I don't think uh, introverts care to I admit. Mean, I'm, I'm certainly not something that we care to say that. I am my own best company sometimes, isn't it? In fact, exactly. many times, I am my own best company. So um, I, an introvert will more likely relate to the sense that, oh, there's this rich, you know, sort of like sense of exploration, reflection, contemplation, meditation even that I have on my own. I am less reliant. Again, here, I think we see the central theme of introversion, the reliance on the self, right, rather than external stimuli to gain a sense of fulfillment, to gain a sense of meaning, purpose, enjoyment, right? And it's certainly reflected in the hobbies uh, that you engage in, right? So you read, uh, you watch the movies, you read about it. Reading is a favorite pastime for many introverts because it helps them sort of like reflect on all the things. Oh, the author is speaking to me. I can relate to this. So yeah, you're nodding your head along to that. So it's rich. <laughs> it is really meaningful and it's satisfying to us. And this reflects much more, uh, you know, us deriving our energies inward, inside, internally from ourselves rather than that uh, of an external nature, right? So less parties, more contemplative, you know, book reading, quiet sessions with a nice cup of tea. Um, but you're right. You're right. Uh, and just to before I trail off and, you know, um, just ramble on, I think you've already covered some of the the downsides of introversion, the negative perceptions associated with the trait, uh, the tendency to be antisocial, of course. Um, others I've come across include, you know, uh, unfriendly, aloof is another one, mm. lonely, right? Quiet is, I think, generally neutral. Oh, I heard one before. Um What's the word? Uh, scheming. Oh, that's actually <laughs> terrible. Is it? What's this person thing? I can't, you know, usually when you are in a social event, you, you want to sort of like, you know, gauge the people around you want to know. But an introvert doesn't give away a lot. So I think that un unfortunately leads to the assumption right. that, oh, this person must be plotting a scheming something. <laughs> uh, but no, no, they're, they're sussing out the situation. They're just being careful. Again, we talked about deliberation. We talked about contemplation we talked about you know just being quiet and observant right mm. seeing watching pay attention before you open your mouth right uh so and, and this is just natural tendency right uh, for introverts to value more introspection observation deliberation than um uh, than extroverts now on the uh, on, just to build on that point though and we move to the 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 positives right, right. of introversion there is uh a number there are actually a number of psychological studies that tell us that introverts um, because of more deliberative decision making tend to make better more nuanced more uh, considerate decisions they also have sharper observation skills uh, they're more perceptive right of the 
of the cues, the nonverbals in their mm. social interactions. They also thrive in solitude. And um, I'm not sure if it was you that I've spoken to with, but a couple of while, a while back, uh, we talked about solitude and some of the most creative inventors in history, right, really required the solitude. Right. They were introverts at heart. And their best ideas actually came when they are away from others and just reflecting on the rich inner lives and thoughts and ideas. You know, they let them just play freely, right, without the distraction of external noise. And they came up with some of the most, you know, inventive, world-changing uh, inventions. So these are the uh, upsides of introverts. Uh, I, I think we still have the ongoing, the persistent, um, I, I wouldn't call it stigma, but the impression, right, that introverts are not people person. Right? Yeah, they are. They can be people person. They just need that little bit more of a space mm-hmm. to also, right, have time to themselves. Right? They don't need. They don't need people around them all the time, and they're actually quite happy. And that might sound strange to extroverts, but that's just just who introverts are. That was assistant professor in psychology, Dr. Eugene T, on the episode titled "Introverts: Antisocial or Misunderstood." Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. If you'd like to check out the full conversation from any of these shows highlighted, they're all available on podcasts. You can just find them on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search Today I Learned Podcast. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.